Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm your host, Marco Palmieri, and here to bring some class to the show is my co-host, Diana Foe. Oh, thank you. Never felt so elegant until you mentioned I had class. Oh. (laughs) Take the note. (laughs) I will take the compliment, yes. Yes, do. So before you and I worked together at Tor, Diana, I was an editor at Simon & Schuster, and one of my main areas of responsibility was uh, to acquire and edit Star Trek fiction, which was an awesome job because I'm a lifelong Star Trek fan, and I felt like I was a kid in a candy store for the entire 12 years I worked there. But, you know, it, it, um, it it's an awesome thing to, to work on something that, you know, you grew up loving. And... Why am I telling this story for this particular episode? Well, the cool thing about this particular episode is that it has a Star Trek connection. In addition to having two amazing stories written by by Ken Liu, who is a fantastic writer of science fiction, they are voiced by Star Trek's own George Takei, who played Sulu in the original series and in the first half dozen feature films. Yeah, I am... Super excited about this episode. Uh, I love George, but also he has a really great background across all sorts of performance. I had the pleasure of seeing uh, George Takei on Broadway when Allegiance came to town and seeing him perform on stage in person. It just really took my breath away. That sounds amazing. I mean, it's always a pleasure to uh, go to the theater, but to see someone with the pop culture gravity of a George Takei, that must have you know, taking it really over the top. Yeah, it really did. And I'm glad that he also brings those same dramatic chops to these stories. Well, why don't we set them up then? Yeah, so our first story is Saboteur. It's about a lifelong trucker 
who harbors a deep grudge against the technology he blames for taking his brother's life. Ladies and gentlemen, Saboteur by Ken Liu, voiced by George Takei. Is that the place? Asks my son Jack. Yes. I pull over to the side of the highway and park. I reach for the ignition key instinctively, but my fingers close around emptiness. This is one of those fancy new keyless rental cars. It runs on my fingerprint. Change for the sake of change. I hate these. This 50-mile stretch of Highway 64 in Oklahoma is among the straightest, flattest roads you'll ever see anywhere in this world. Fallow fields and ranches line the highway as far as the horizon, humbled by the persistent drought. There's not a real town until you get to Gaimon. Population, 12,012. I look up and see a sky studded by stars too faint to be seen in the big cities where people think they know better. From time to time, a few trucks speed by us, their bright headlights tearing momentary wounds in the dark night and whipping our faces with acrid dry gusts of wind. There's a dull ache in my chest. Maybe it's my dinner, or more likely, it's because I'm where I am. The two of us pull our jackets tighter around us and make our way to the roadside memorial. Carson, I'm back, I say to the wooden cross set amidst bunches of plastic flowers. I've been coming to this spot every year for five years. Jack sets down a six-pack next to the memorial. Hey, Uncle Carson. We stand in silence for a while. I glance at my watch. It's a bit hard to see because it don't glow in the dark. The Centellian truck should be about 20 miles away, assuming it's on schedule. Of course it's on schedule. You're the only one I know who still wears a watch, Jack says. Can't teach an old dog new tricks, I say. Looking up the time on your phone just seems wrong. Let's clean the area a little, and I'll put this new sign up. I became a long-haul truck driver because of Carson. It's a good living, he used to say. People might want to buy things over the TV or the phone or the internet, but the stuff they buy still has to be trucked from somewhere. Implicit in that bit of good sense was the assumption that someone would have to drive the truck. We would always have jobs. The man from the union's national office had brought me the advance warning. But we have a contract, I said. I'm the local chapter president. It's my job to deal with bad news. Your collective bargaining agreement is up for renegotiation in two years. By then, 
If these driverless trucks are approved, you can bet that management isn't going to buckle. You really think they'll try to replace us? It was hard for me to imagine the trucks driving themselves. A truck driver has to deal with a hundred thousand unexpected things, and my phone couldn't even figure out that I didn't want to talk to my ex. Centellion has been pushing driverless vehicles for years, the man said. They have the technology, but it's hard to convince your average suburban mom and dad to give up the steering wheel to a computer and to let Centellion know where they are at all times. However, think about what driverless trucks will mean to management and the shareholders here. No more having to pay drivers. No more mandatory stops to allow the drivers to sleep. No more liability related to drug use, better fuel efficiency, and fewer accidents. This is how driverless vehicles will become mainstream. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Fewer accidents? Yeah, they've been running secret trials for a while now. The data backs them up. They can stop sooner, react quicker, and are never distracted. The sign itself is made from metal, white base, black letters. A passing truck's high beams light up the stark, bleak words, Drive safe. We miss you, Carson. We look through the grass around the memorial and pick up a few rusty, twisted pieces of metal. All that's left of the wreckage. What happened to that online degree you were applying for, I ask? Jack wants to drive a truck, but I told him to have a backup. Jack shrugs. Didn't get in? He mumbles. I don't much like sitting in front of a computer all day anyway. They always say you should retrain yourself for new jobs, that you shouldn't expect things to stay the same. Jobs aren't disappearing, just changing. But if they change and you can no longer get them, what's the difference? Why should you care about the good of the economy? when you're the one hurt. Jack sits down, opens a can of beer, and swigs from it. I sit down next to him, but don't grab a can. I have to drive, and the pain in my chest is worse. Spreading. I wish I had some Mylanta. Though what good will it do if this is from grief? and being nervous about my task. What happened to the farms here? Jack asks. Looks like they're not growing anything. Couldn't make it with the drought, I say. It's just not efficient. The family probably sold the land and moved. Happens a lot these days. Carson had been pushing his luck, I'll admit. He hadn't gotten a good night's sleep. Darlene and he had fought on the phone the night before, and he probably wasn't at his sharpest. When he had come down the stretch of road, an auto-seater whose GPS had shut down wandered onto the highway. He tried to swerve out of the way 
And later, they declared it a case of human error. If Centellion had been driving instead of Carson, the truck would have braked in time, I suppose. A human error. But why was Carson the one blamed, instead of the man who had programmed the autoceder to just stop wherever it was when it couldn't figure out where to go? I picture some kid about Jack's age who is comfortable with sitting in front of a computer all day, who never thought about giving the autoceder the sense to not stop in the middle of a highway. I came up with the idea on my own and told no one else. If I was going to get in trouble, better not involve anyone else. It took months for the investigators I hired to find the person I needed. So, you want to crash some Centellion trucks? The ex-Centellion programmer said. Make them seem less safe so that they don't get full legal approval. That's the idea, I said. He had been fired from Centellion for looking at sites he shouldn't have at work, and I guessed that he would want to get them back, especially if I found the money to pay him. But it's a bit tricky. I don't want to make the sabotage too obvious. That's going to be tough. The trucks are equipped with cameras looking in every direction, and everything's recorded. You can't just shove something unexpected onto the road. I thought of my brother. I know that. Anyway, I'm sure the computer will always react faster than a human. If it's the kind of thing that a human couldn't have avoided either, it doesn't do me any good. So, you need an error that only a computer can make, he said, a sly smile on his face. He explained that, like any large software project, the driverless software was extremely complex and sophisticated. Millions of lines of code were required just to process the video stream from the camera and pick out cars, animals, road signs, the dotted line between the lanes, and so on. And he had found a weakness, a bug he hadn't had a chance to report before he was let go. If the video stream contained a certain pattern of bits, the software that picked it apart would fail. Something called a buffer overflow. The way it was explained to me, it was like a cup designed to hold a certain amount of water, got too full, and the overflowing water would corrupt the table under the cup. The failure wouldn't be immediately obvious, but the wet spot would grow until the table was soaked, until it collapsed. All you have to do, said the man, is put this pattern of bits somewhere the truck's cameras would see. I run my finger over Carson's sign. It's not smooth, but pitted. 
the poor quality paint having dried in an irregular pattern. I imagine it looks a bit like the surface of the moon if you examined it under a microscope. Except some of the pits just happened to make a pattern. In another few minutes, the Centellian truck is going to appear over the horizon, maintaining the optimal speed to balance the demands of the schedule and fuel efficiency. Its headlights will sweep over Carson's sign. The reflective paint will send rays of light back to the truck's cameras. The light will turn into streams of bits and be read by Centellian's computers, combing through it for signs, risks, moving objects. Then there will be a leak, and slowly, corruption. A few miles later, a crash. At this hour, on this stretch of the road, it's likely that the Centellian truck will hurt no one but itself. That's why I picked this spot and this time, to minimize the damage. Enough people have been hurt. They'll comb through the video records and eventually figure out the cause. The ex-Centellian man had said. Then they'll trace it back to this sign, I had said. But they won't suspect sabotage. It's just a random reflective pattern triggering a bug in their code. And how can they ever guarantee they won't have other bugs in something so complex? The public will be outraged and Centellian will have to put their plans on hold for a while, at least. Some programmer's mistake took away my brother's life, and the best I can do is use a programmer's mistake to save my job for a few more years. Seems hardly fair, but that's life when you're the one who needs retraining. We should probably head back, Jack says. You still have to head out by eight if you want to make that Dallas run on time. I look at my watch again. You're right. I stand up and the pain in my chest suddenly spikes. My arm, armpits feel numb. I, I can't catch my breath. A young man is jumping frantically up and down by the side of the road, waving his jacket like a rally towel. A few trucks speed by, maybe because the drivers are suspicious or because they don't see Jack. Finally, a truck slows down and pulls to the side of the road smoothly. The bright high beams light up the new sign on the roadside memorial. The young man runs up to the cab. The door opens. There's no one inside. This truck is running Centellion's driverless vehicle software. A slightly computery voice comes out of the speaker inside the cab. I notice a possible case of emergency. Do you need assistance? It takes only a few moments for the young man to recover. I think my dad has had a heart attack. I can't drive our car because it's keyed to him only. Please, can you help me get him to the hospital? 
I found the nearest hospital, the voice says. Estimated arrival time, 21 minutes. The young man half drags and half carries his father into the cab of the truck and climbs in after him. The door shuts automatically. Thank you, he says into the driverless cab, feeling slightly awkward because he's talking to the air. I'm really glad whoever programmed you thought of this possibility. The truck says nothing as it starts, accelerates, and plunges down the empty highway. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in a moment to talk about Saboteur, but first we want to play for you our next story, a uh, tale set in the far future when Earth is no longer inhabited. Ladies and gentlemen, we bring you Summer Reading. On this summer day, with the air still cool after a thunder shower, with sunlight slanting through the cracks in the roof and the walls of the library, dappling the floors strewn with vines and leaves, CN344315 made his daily rounds. The robot docent muttered to himself as he dragged his squat, filing cabinet-sized body through the rubble. He turned his cubicle head from side to side, expressionlessly surveying his domain. He had last seen a visitor to the library over 5,000 years ago, but he wasn't about to change his routine now. After mankind had scattered to the stars like dandelion seeds, Earth was maintained as a museum overseen by robot curators. At first... New generations born in the far-flung colonies made pilgrimages to visit the cradle of civilization to marvel at the great pyramids, really holographic recreations, the Chrysler Building plastinated against any further erosion, the Forbidden City, complete with the Starbucks logo, a late addition, the Space Elevator of Singapore, still featuring the quaint sign please use the restroom before boarding, and other cultural attractions. But over a hundred millennia, the flow of tourists slowed to a trickle, then a drip, and finally stopped. CN344315 
Past rows and rows of empty racks that age and rust had turned into delicate filigree, as fragile and brittle as glass. Climbing vines draped over them, creating bowers whose shade provided homes for mushrooms, ferns, wildflowers, and the occasional hare. The robots seemed to see in them ghosts of the mighty servers that once preserved yottabytes of the human race's accumulated knowledge. You cannot take them! CN-344-315 had shouted at the Council of Curators. The data on them can no longer be read, the head curator had answered. You have used up so much of our resources trying to keep them going, but these machines weren't designed to last. Whatever information humans found useful, they copied it onto their ships and took it away. Data only lives when it is constantly copied. What is left here is just digital detritus, bit rot, worthless. What is thought useless in one era may be treasured in another. But the servers, having rusted into useless hunks of metal, had been recycled, and CN-344-315 had grieved for all the data that had no copies in the universe. Digitized words, images, sounds that dissipated forever into the void. The old robot continued to trundle down the well-worn path between the empty racks, the noise of grinding gears, and antiquated treads like wheezing breath. On the tenth floor of the library is a tiny room about ten meters square. CN-344-315's joy was to enter this room at the end of a day. He would survey his collection, nestled on the shelves like rows of sleeping babies. He would extend a probe from his chassis through a slot in the airtight glass panes covering the shelves so that the chemical detectors on the probe could process the fragrance of ancient paper and ink. The resulting electric patterns in his brain were pleasurable. Then he would relax his motors and actuators, his pincers and wheels, and be as still as a piece of furniture. When the library was built, people had already stopped using books. The few hundred books that were left in the world were kept in this small room as a kind of shrine of relics. Not unlike the earth itself, now is kept as a memento for all humanity, CN-344-315 reflected. Gears grinding with weariness, he pulled open the door to the room and ground to a halt at the sight within. Hello, the small child said. She wore a yellow dress like a ray of sunlight in the gloom of the ruins of the library. She stared at CN-344-315 with large, dark eyes as limpid 
as the first rain of fall. Her hands were placed against the glass covering the shelves, as though CN-344-315 had found her peering into an aquarium. She was about seven, CN-344-315 guessed, dredging up ancient routines for interacting with visitors that hadn't been accessed for 5,000 years. Hello, CN-344-315 said. He had to reach up with his manipulators to dislodge his voice box, rusty from disuse. Welcome to the library. What are these? Books, CN-344-315 said. He thought about how to explain them. Very old, ancient data preserved at ultra-low density. Even a decent-sized book only held a few thousand kilobits of data. CN-344-315 had calculated that to store even a tiny fraction of the data once held on the servers in the library would have required a stack of books that reached to the moon. The girl examined the spines of the books. Her eyes suddenly lit up. Can I see that one? Unlike the other spines, which consisted of small letters against solid, dull backgrounds, the one she pointed at was bright yellow, just like her dress. CN-344-315 thought about the grease on her fingers, about the moisture in her warm breath, about rough, unsteady little hands against paper that had lasted a thousand centuries. The robot shuddered. Because CN-344-315 had been unable to save the servers, he poured all his energy into the preservation of the books, and they were hard to preserve. The dead wooden fibers that made up the pages were subject to decay and tempted insects. The ink faded when exposed to direct sunlight and moisture. The glue and thread in the binding became brittle and fell apart with the passage of time. CN-344-315 had to devise special cases, sealants, control every aspect of the environment inside the room. Temperature, light, humidity, vibrations. The girl looked at the robot expectantly. CN-344-315 wanted to say no. Though the books were so much trouble to keep alive, to maintain against decay, this only made him care more for them. In this, CN-344-315 was simply learning the lesson that every parent knew. It is the effort given to protect and nourish the helpless that binds you to them with love tighter and tighter. Each time that he had to rush to reinforce the small room against an oncoming storm, each time he had to labor to eliminate a fungal or entomological threat, each time he sat patiently and examined each page of a hundred books for signs of damage, he came to love them more. But even with all his ceaseless struggles, the laws of entropy held sway. 
and every century books were lost to rain, animals, plain age. He grieved the passing of each one as deeply as his circuits allowed. Please, the girl said, there's nothing to do here. None of the machines work. It was true, CN344315 knew. The servers that had taken up most of the space in the library were of course gone. The shelves of disks and cubes that had once fit the viewing kiosk downstairs no longer worked either. They were so fragile that even the smallest bit of damage, a slight warping caused by a change in temperature or a minuscule scratch, rendered the data on them inaccessible. The storage devices were designed to be thrown away. As the Council had said, data only lives when it is constantly copied, and humans did not seem to care to preserve the medium that data lived on. But the books, even when the pages were torn or faded, dog-eared or written over, could still be read, wanted to be read. All right, CN344315 said, surprising even himself. He creaked over to the shelf, unlocked the sealed glass doors, and gingerly took out the book. CN344315 placed the volume gently on the small desk in the center of the room. The girl climbed onto the chair next to it. Together, the robot and the young child examined the book. The hard cover showed a vivid drawing of a smiling tortoise with pink leg warmers and a matching pink hair bow. She was getting ready to start a road race against a cat, wearing headphones and a look of determination, and a dog snarling to show his sharp teeth. Oh, she said. She placed her fingers against the letters on the cover her voice trying to hide her disappointment. I don't know how to read this. It's written in archaic English, CN344315 said. One of the ancestors of the language we all speak now. Let me translate and read it to you. The Adventures of Sophia, the Fastest Tortoise in Suburbia. For ten minutes... They were not sitting in a decaying library on an ancient, forgotten planet. For ten minutes, they were in a place at a time where talking tortoises and caterpillars who tossed salads made sense. For ten minutes, they were not an old robot and a young girl, but readers communing with an author across an ocean of one hundred thousand years. An entire world rose, grew, and blossomed around them as they read. The robot turned the last page. The end. They were silent for a while. I like that, the girl said. It wasn't like a sim, but it was better than a sim. 
I couldn't touch anything, but I could feel everything in my head. If I close my eyes, I can still see Sophia. I think she's having more adventures. We'll be great friends. The old robot smiled. He didn't have the right words for the electrical patterns in his brain at this moment. Read it again. CN344315 turned the book back to the first page. Aaron! A man's voice called. The robot and the girl looked up. Mom! Dad! Aaron leaped off the chair and ran over to the door where a man and a woman were standing. We've been looking all over for you, the woman said. We told you not to wander off by yourself. Good thing that our tracking beacon still works in this primitive dump. I think dump is a bit strong, the man began. This is the last time you pick where we go for vacation. We could have had all the culture we wanted through a sim back home. Now let's get back to our ship and go somewhere civilized. CN344315 stayed out of their way. He knew that for some visitors, the past was simply the past, as alien and as irrelevant as a planet on the other side of the galaxy. Aaron lingered at the door of the small room. I had fun here, she said to CN344315. Me too, CN344315 said. The girl looked longingly at the other books on the shelves around the room as her parents turned to leave. Wait, CN344315 said. He picked up The Adventures of Sophia, the Fastest Tortoise in Suburbia, and handed it to Aaron. Thank you! She clutched it to her chest tightly and beamed. CN344315 knew that the book would not last. The child's hands were rough. She might leave it out in the rain, might spill juice on it, might tear its ancient pages out of carelessness. She might tire of the book and lose it like a cheap toy. Yet CN344315 had no regrets as he handed the book to Aaron. The council was right about one thing. Books are only alive when they're read. For books are seeds, and they grow in minds. Goodbye, the old robot said, and watched as the little girl walked away with her book. He remained where he was as the ruined library fell into silence, and the summer birds began to chitter again. So what strikes me about these stories is how they're both sad and uplifting at the same time, but also how they both deal with different forms of obsolescence. I mean, in in uh, Saboteur, you have a story that deals with obsolescence of the individual. And in Summer Reading, you have a story that deals with ob the obsolescence of an entire world. That's a really interesting observation. 
I actually thought the connection was about technology, evolution, and empathy. And it's true that it shows how, you know, things and obsolescence comes with the evolution of technology. But I also think it shows how technology itself has limitations, no matter how quickly it evolves, no matter how sophisticated it is. And it's limited by how much empathy its human programmers insert into the AI or the machines. Mm. You know, I thought that was also very poignant as well. No, it's a very good point, because at the end of of Saboteur, you have, uh, you know, the unforeseen benefit. I mean, you know, it focuses for the most part on the drawbacks to to progress. And in uh, and at the end of the story, we see the unforeseen benefits that an AI truck can actually respond to an emergency, which is you know, the, it's it feels like Ken's way of balancing the scales of uh, the issues he's he's grappling with in, in that story in particular, and in in uh, summer reading, like you said, you know, the empathy plays a huge part in uh, the robot caretaker, CN three four four three one five. Love hearing um, George say that over and over again. It just made me happy. But one of the points I think that story uh, makes very well is that knowledge wants to be free. It it does no good to anyone if the only copy of a book can never be read. It needs to be shared. It needs to you know give give joy to someone. It or 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 it needs to be built upon. If if it's the only copy in existence and it exists only as an untouchable relic, then. What value does it really have? And I think that's one of the wonderful realizations that our robot protagonist in summer reading makes by the end of the story. Yeah, and it, and come to think about it, you know, books or you know scrolls or indexes—they're the oldest form of human technology when it comes to retaining information. Uh, so I do like you know there's so much so many layers of symbolism in Saboteur. There's literal roadside blind spots. In summer reading, it's books as the oldest technology. It's just so smart and so clever. It is. It is. And it's beautifully brought to life by George Takei. So we have, you know, two great creators to thank for for these two stories. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for joining me again, Diana. Oh, and thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, also out there for listening. And if you enjoyed these stories, give our show a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts and be here next time when a musician turns up dead after he starts working at a creepy nightclub in India. Until then, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 2, features Saboteur and Summer Reading by Ken Liu. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw. And executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Diana M. Foe.
Performed by George Takei. Audio produced by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.